0: This is Woodson Carpenter, community arts strategist with RISE Chattanooga, as a part of our ongoing efforts to provide good artistic, creative programming to the Chattanooga area, we've started a new series called The Art of. In this series, we focus specifically on genres that are born out of the black experience. Our hope is to create new and interesting conversations about the artists and the instruments that are crucial to um, the origins and the continued existence of those genres. We hope you listen, we hope you watch, and when it's safe to do so, we hope you. You'll join us and have these conversations in our space and together. Thank you. All right. Well, this is it. This is the uh, the first Art of Jazz session that we're doing. Uh, we've got James Ward here. Uh, my name is Joseph Freeman. <laughs> All right. Um. Let's see. Let's introduce. Uh, let's introduce you, James. Uh, let's see. Uh, your bio says that uh, you're a composer, a performer, a recording artist. Um, yeah. Uh, so far, that's, that's already a lot. Um, you have a, a BA in Music from Covenant College and a Master's in Music uh, from UTK? That's right. Nice. Uh, you've got 14 albums. Ooh, that's amazing. Um, you taught at Chattanooga Christian School. Uh, you had a 16-year full-time music di- uh, directorship at New City Fellowship. Um, you also taught at Covenant College, uh, Lee University, and um, you're also teaching private lessons, that's awesome. And uh, and now you're the house pianist at uh, Parking Legs. I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. Now that's a jazz jam that we have uh, once a month. And right now, COVID has kind of shut it down. Yeah. Every last Sunday of the month from three to five in the afternoon is a jazz jam. So if you wanted to come, and strap on your saxophone and play "My Funny Valentine." We, everyone is welcome, and there's a house band that plays with the various musicians that come to sit in. So I'm the pianist in that house band.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've uh, seen that before. I think uh, when I went, it was um, uh, Robert Crabtree. I, I believe he was. Yeah. There, oh yeah. Before you, uh, yeah. I, I went and saw. Um, I saw some people play with them, and it was it was a really cool it was a really cool thing. Yeah, but I'm um, awesome. Well, uh, let's get started. So uh, this first uh, Art of Jazz session, we'll be talking about uh, just early jazz in general, and um, also be talking about Mary Lou Williams and uh, her contribution to uh, jazz as a genre. So get started here. Uh, so do you have any uh, reflections on early jazz in general? Um, what do you what do you
1: think? Well, early would be New Orleans and before New Orleans, of course, the African music brought with us all this diversity of rhythm. And then I'm sure that the slaves, as they were traveling on the ships, heard sea shanties and worked, And they in turn, they became work songs as a part of the life of the slave. And then the spirituals in the late 18th century, the blues around that time in the Mississippi Basin. And then, of course, throughout the South, various kinds of string bands. And then in the uh, around 1900 in St. Louis, Ragtime comes into um, comes into view with Scott Joplin and Tom Turpin, both of whom were black composers. Mm -hmm. And Ragtime was a written music form. It was not improvised, but it had a tremendous uh, launch into the jazz era uh, because of all the syncopation and the sound of the piano. And uh, many of the early jazz musicians, like Jelly Roll Morton, for example, Mm -hmm. played ragtime and he swung it. Ragtime originally was straight eights, but Jelly Roll swung the ragtime. And you can actually, at the Smithsonian uh, collection of uh, classic jazz, you can actually hear Jelly Roll playing a swung version of the maple leaf rag.
0: That's really cool.
1: So there's a very close connection between ragtime and early New Orleans music. Wow. But, you know, there's a, so much that happened in New Orleans. If you've ever had the opportunity, Joseph, you should take a trip down to New Orleans and spend a weekend. That is a city. It's not a, it's not the largest city in the United States, but every single night of the week, seven nights a week. You can hear jazz in a live in a club somewhere in New Orleans.
0: That is what I've heard, and yeah, that makes me want to go down there so badly. Um,
1: haven't gone yeah, to yet, yeah,
0: but you know, hopefully one day.
1: It's it's a great experience, and so those guys, you know they they were playing mostly just uh, and in New Orleans there was a mix of cultures Creole, the country mm-hmm. black folk, and the Creole people were more like uptown and educated types, but they were mixed race, and so there was a real blending going on. But some of the things in early jazz that are also significant is like the advent of radio in 1922. Yeah. Um, and some of the recordings were very lousy back then because before microphones, they just put up these big cones and they just kind of captured the sound. <laughs> yeah. so if you listen to the early recordings, there's a reason why you don't hear drums in them. The drummer couldn't play, really, because if he did, he'd cover up everything else. Yeah. so. It, <laughs> those early recordings, they do help us to hear somewhat of how it sounded. Mm-hmm. Then you have moving up the river. Uh, actually, it's not on the river, but Chicago is the next big hotbed for jazz. Mm-hmm. And Chicago jazz is different from new Orleans. Some of it, if you listen to it, it sounds very similar, but the bands are getting bigger. You might have two or three clarinet players instead of just one. You have um uh, the transfer over to the guitar as a comping instrument rather than the banjo. And then there's an advent more of saxophone in Chicago jazz. So there is an evolution going on and wow. it's, it's getting ready for the swing era. Of course, it comes in, in the thirties. And, uh,
0: and, uh, like big band kind of music.
1: Is that, kind yeah, of, the swing um, era really, um, it, in the early thirties you have hot jazz, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the Louis Armstrong, New Orleans kind of music. Yeah. Then you've got the big orchestras with Guy Lombardo and mm-hmm. Paul Whiteman. And then the big bands were Fletcher Henderson and Glenn Gray and even Duke Ellington over on the East Coast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, with Ellington in 1932, he recorded It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. Mm-hmm. And Ellington's band... And brought in many, many innovations in the style of jazz. Number one, his bass player began to make the bass more of a solo instrument. And it wasn't just going boom, 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 boom all the time. But it starts walking boom, 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 boom. And Jimmy Blanton, his bass player, was known for reshaping the role of the upright bass. And then of course Duke had an amazing compositional skill and he had literally five different kinds of music that he did at the Cotton Club. He did dance pieces, he did pieces they called him jungle style because they they went with kind of a kind of a show that they did. And then he did mood pieces that were really ballads. He did pop tunes and wrote a lot of pop tunes. And then he did functional or non-functional, like independent performance tunes that people would just sit and listen to, which was a new thing for jazz because mostly it had been dance music up to that point. So I don't know. The swing era has a lot of, a lot of changes to a bigger band, mm-hmm, yeah. um, five trumpets, four, tr- uh, five trumpets, four, four, five or five saxes, four trombones, guitar and the rhythm section. The arrangements in the swing era are much more carefully done And that's where Mary Lou Williams becomes a significant factor because she was an important arranger in Kansas City and for other big bands during the swing era. And that careful arranging meant that they could have really beautiful, lush settings. And and all those horns could be doing very complex chords. Of course, the soloists too, in the swing era, you got Lester Young, Coleman Hawkins. You got some of the, those two sax players right there define a lot of the sound of soloing in the swing era. And soloing is something that becomes more a part of the arrangement, whereas in New Orleans jazz, it was more of a polyphonic, everybody just throwing in their ideas. Yeah. But in a swing era, the band backs off and the soloist steps out. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the soloist would interact with the vocalist also. Mm-hmm. That's what you hear when you're hearing Billie Holiday sing, and she, is, of course, one of the great vocalists of the swing era. Mm-hmm. And you hear Billie Holiday singing, and you hear that sax player in the background, kind of going whoa, 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 whoa answering her lines. Now that's Lester Young. Wow. Those guys were chatting with the vocalist and playing these lines. And of course, that's the last thing about the swing era. You've got Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald. Billie Holiday, toward the latter part of the swing era, Bing Crosby, who really was the guy who began to use the microphone and make the microphone into a major instrument mm-hmm. in popular music because wow. he could get up real close and whisper, and he could make his voice have more nuance as a swing singer. Wow. And Bing, Bing Crosby sang with Paul Whiteman's band. He was around for a long time. Um, before the swing era, but Mm. that's, there's just so much in this period of American music.
0: Yeah. That was a lot to unpack there. Um, (laughs) There's a, there's a lot. I mean, let's go back to uh, to, to a ragtime. So, so you're saying that a ragtime and uh, was it blues are those kind of like precursors to a jazz you would say, or like the, like the grandfather maybe
1: of jazz? Most definitely um, blues of course has a 12 bar structure Mm-hmm. and it has a three chords, and they're all dominant chords.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a dominant chord means that it, each chord can have a, a relationship to the next chord, and they can all actually support the same scale throughout the whole song. You could play one scale if you're playing in the F blues. You could play the F, scale, F blues scale the whole time. Wow. So, yes, blues is a very seminal country kind of thing, Mm -hmm. They come up out of the Mississippi Delta, and a lot of those guitar players and blues singers were country folk. They were really farmers and rough people. Yeah. But then you get ragtime. You got people who are sophisticated. They're educated musicians. They can play classical music. And they wrote their music down, and it was purchased by the public. And sat on the pianos of hundreds of households throughout the country. Oh, wow. Kids were learning ragtime, <laughs> so it was a way to spread the music. But yes, ragtime is distinct from um, from New Orleans jazz in its in its structure. It's much more oriented toward the piano. Mm-hmm. And you know, Scott Joplin did write a an opera, a ragtime opera called *Tritonicia*. Yeah. And so it it was very much of an uptown, sophisticated type of music compared with blues, which is more um, guttural, closer to work song kind of music.
0: Wow! Yeah, no, that's a uh, that's really amazing. So uh, so ragtime's more of a city folk, uh, more sophisticated. Blues is kind of country folk. That's that's really cool. That's yeah, a, <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. All right, all right. So. Uh, as far as, I guess, early jazz as a, as a genre, um, what do you think really makes the early jazz, the New Orleans jazz, what makes it so important to, uh, to I guess, uh, study or just to listen to? What, what makes jazz important in your, uh, in your opinion?
1: Well, um, you're a music historian. You've probably studied music. Oh. Um, <laughs> and as you know, many, many musicians are not students of music. They do it because they have the talent, mm-hmm. and they have the love of it, and they have an audience.
0: That's the beauty of music: is you don't need to study it, you know, in depth to enjoy it, to play it, to you know, experience it. That's,
1: yeah, right. But uh, if you look at uh, some of the folks that are in the uh, Rise Chattanooga lineup, you take a guy like So Chill. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an educated musician. He has a he has a college degree in jazz piano. And he's an inter- he has an entertainer, he's an entertainer and he's a rapper and he can come across like a street musician. But he, so chill has put his hours in in the practice room. Mm-hmm. And he has studied theory, he has studied improvisation, he's studied these old classic songs. Mm-hmm. So making it important, when you learn what's gone before, early jazz is responsible. We talked about the blues scale where we, it's responsible for many of the forms and the melodies and the scales that we have today. Mm-hmm. And even some of the improvisation lines come from songs that people are imitating in their improv. Mm-hmm. And early jazz is the indigenous classical music of America.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's what America came up with. When, when um, Dvorak came to the United States, from Europe and studied American music. He went home and said, black music is where it's at in America. That is America's music. Yep. So because of early jazz, we have the blues, which of course is the foundation of all rock and roll and rhythm and blues. That's right. We have the blending of rhythms with dancing. Mm -hmm. So you might've had ballroom dancing or you might've had a different type of dancing in Europe. But in America, you suddenly have this wild social dancing that goes along with this infectious, syncopated music. Mm -hmm. Then I think, too, you hear in early music, you hear the blending of horns, and in the swing era, you even hear strings and orchestral music blended with popular music. Popular music, not classical music. (laughs) But today, when you hear Diana Krall or you hear Celine Dion singing or Barbara Streisand singing a big ballad with lush strings, mm-hmm. that's because of this swing era. It's wow. because of Ella Fitzgerald. It's because of these folks that have gone before that that style is so beloved now. So you see the development of music. We mentioned before the microphone. Mm-hmm. The microphone now is such a central part. Of recording and performing. Course, and we're yes. using a microphone right now for this program. Mm-hmm. And that microphone was part of the early development of music in jazz. And night after night, musicians playing in dance halls, learning how to use a microphone. And so country musicians, soul musicians, rock musicians, they are all doing what was done in the early days of jazz. Wow. So you know. I guess you might also say that we also have thousands of recordings of these 30s and 40s singers. Mm-hmm. And, and I teach jazz in, in a college. And I'm teaching some students who don't really know much about it. So what do I do? I don't ask them to go listen to, to, uh, to Katy Perry. I don't ask them to listen to her to learn how to sing. <laughs> yeah. I say go back and listen to Sarah Vaughan singing Night and Day by Cole Porter. Mm. Mm. And that happened this spring. And two of my singers really fell in love with Night and Day by Cole Porter. Night and day, you are the one. (laughs) Such a beautiful, smooth, hip song. Mm. And that is the music that has gone before us. And that's what makes it important.
0: Oh, no, I would would agree with you. That's a... So so, really, we can uh, we kind of owe it to the early jazz musicians for giving us a lot of what we have and a lot of what we hear today in our pop music and our um, and really everything. That's um, yeah, that's really amazing.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a cool thing. Definitely.
0: Um, so this uh, maybe a dumb question, but why do you listen to jazz? If you could pinpoint like one reason. You listen to jazz.
1: One reason would be very much that I enjoy it. It (laughs) brings me joy. It brings me pleasure to listen to jazz. Simply, yeah. I like to play it. I do play it. I play it every day.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm learning all the time to perform tunes, learn tunes. But listening to it gives me a a sense of it's, it's both complex and it has this Vernacular connection to the common people. So yeah. jazz is complicated. It doesn't have simple chords. No, not at all. And of I course, in, test in, that. in the New Orleans era, they did use simple chords.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but as you come in through the swing era, you're starting to hear more and more upper extension in the chords. Or just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, <laughs> and you, got, you got five saxes, and they're all playing a different note, right? Yeah. So, you really do have a lot of complexity there, but over but over against that, you have da, 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 da. I'm gonna cry me a river. you got this really kind of folksy, intimate sound mm-hmm. coming out of the vocalist. And the same thing when a sax player plays, they're imitating vocalists when they're playing solos. So I'd say that's my main reason for listening to it now you could say, well, Mr. Ward, you're an educated musician. And so you like mm-hmm. to listen to educated music. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's probably some truth to that. Um, although, you know, if somebody asked me to, I I like to play Johnny B. Good. I like to play. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like to play music. that's just crazy and sweating and, and having fun and getting people on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. That's part of the joy of it all. And then people throughout the world, in Japan and in Europe, are big jazz lovers. Yeah, and they don't even have the history that we do in America with jazz, and they love it.
0: No, I think that's a really good point that um, the rest of the world loves jazz, and it's 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 kind of weird. It's not as popular in America as it is in the rest of the world, but yeah, they don't have this history that we're, you know, sub so submerged in, and yet they still they love it. <laughs>
1: They work hard at it. The Germans, uh, big bands, incredible mm-hmm. big bands in Germany. Mm-hmm. And in um, and if you follow some of these jazz musicians on Instagram, they're they're circling the globe, playing in Tokyo, Beijing. They're playing, they're gigging <laughs> in these major cities in the Far mm-hmm. East. Um, so, you know, I think, why do I listen to it? I, I, it gives me ideas, too, for playing Mm-hmm. And if I listen to great pianists uh, like Mary Lou Williams, mm-hmm. or if I listen to Wynton Kelly, uh, another great bebop pianist, if I listen to them and even write down what they're playing, which is called transcribing, yes. <laughs> it's one of the standard ways that jazz musicians learn to do their craft mm-hmm. by transcribing the, the, the solos and the comping patterns of the great players. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons I listen to it is so that I can learn to play better.
0: Wow. So uh, so yeah, that's that's great. Um, I would say honestly, that's kind of the same reason I listen to jazz too. Is first of all, I enjoy it. It's great music. Can't argue about that. <laughs> At least yeah. In my but um, I think one thing with jazz is while well, the chords, yeah, they can be pretty complicated. At the same time, it's there's something just so I don't I really don't know the word. I guess intimate really is a great word for it or something really human about jazz in general that um hmm, it's hard to explain. I think uh, I think that jazz is just it's a uh, it's really easy to connect to it emotionally even if you don't have a lot of background with listening to jazz. Um yeah. And, i think that's that's why it's so popular in the world but um that's one of the reasons i listen to it too is because we just enjoy it jazz is great we just enjoy it but um but also yeah it's to get better at our, at our craft um i just started playing jazz maybe three or four years ago and um yeah if i hadn't listened to uh, you know all those recordings uh in jazz band at utc and in, uh, in that class then yeah i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't be able to do anything i can uh I wouldn't be able to do anything right now on my, uh, on my guitar. Right. But,
1: um, so yeah, I, I think, think too, I think, I think also jazz is like other genre. There is some jazz that's highly accessible to the general listener, hmm. and there is some that is really inscrutable. And I went to hear Herbie Hancock up at uh, the Bijou Theater in Knoxville Ooh, when, wow. I was te- when I was teaching uh, at Chattanooga Christian School in the 90s. And Herbie did a tour with um, Michael Brecker, John Ooh, Patitucci, wow. Brian Blades, wow. um, Roy Hargrove. The name's it was a five-piece band, all-star five-piece band. And they were touring as a tribute to Miles Davis and John Coltrane. Wow. It was some kind of an anniversary. And these five players, it was so hard to follow them because they were all... At such a sophisticated level, Mm -hmm. whereas if you listen to the music of Miles Davis and, of course, the album to buy your your dad, if you want your if your dad likes jazz and you want to give him something for Christmas, get him a CD of Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. 1959. Mm -hmm. That was a big year in jazz. It was the same year that Giant Steps was recorded by John Coltrane and Take Five was recorded by Dave Rubeck. Those three <laughs> jazz albums are still giants. They're iconic recordings. Mm-hmm. And all those artists were going different directions in their careers. Wow. But those three recordings all came out in 1959. And that, that album kind of blew. When you put that on, you dropped a needle on that thing. Mm-hmm. There's just nothing about it that's bad. I mean, it's just so accessible and pleasant to listen to. It's very bluesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Evans plays on it. And Wynton Kelly plays on at the piano. Oh. And just recent, just this week, uh, the drummer from that album uh, passed. Um, Jimmy Cobb was the drummer on that album, and he just passed away this week, ninety-one years old. Oof! Wow. But you know, why do you listen to it? Uh, that record would be a good a good record for someone who just wanted to listen to kind of <laughs> sent cool to have a cool sound, you know? Yeah. Or maybe to put it on at a party and have it in the background.
0: Mm -hmm. Kind of blue. That's that's kind of blue by uh, John Coltrane. That's the album. Miles Davis, kind of blue. Miles Davis. That's right. Sorry, Ah, I should know that.
1: (laughs) The album is so iconic that someone has actually written a book about the recording session. Kind of blue.
0: That's got to be interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So those guys were much later, of course, than uh, the era that we're talking about.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that's a uh, that's uh the 50s. It's a uh, I, I would call that just later jazz. I'm, I I kind of think of uh, the transition between uh, later jazz and early jazz just being World World War 2. Before mm-hmm. that we had um, you know, more swing and then after that we got bebop and then everything else.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Okay, and that's just the way I, I think about it, I guess. Um, sure. Maybe simple, but Anyways, let's let's uh, let's move on here. So um what do people miss when they listen to jazz? When they listen to it? Sure, yeah. When they uh, listen to jazz, is there something that they, they miss that um maybe you've picked up on that um, maybe other people haven't?
1: I think they're hearing, I think folks hear jazz um, and they hear it as a lot of stuff going on at once. And, For example, if someone is accustomed to listening to um, some sort of like roots folk music or something, Mm -hmm. uh, Alison Krauss, if you want to listen to that, you hear an acoustic guitar frequently strumming root position chords, triads, Mm -hmm. and then you might have a vocal, you might have a, a bass player and a drummer, and you might have a pianist playing in the background and supporting that. But mm-hmm. the but the texture of the music is very transparent and open. And folk music is that way. It's, it's music that's created for people to sing ballads to. And, and so sometimes when you approach jazz, you hear the same instruments, drums, bass, keys. You might hear guitar or banjo if it's New Orleans music. Mm-hmm. and then a vocalist maybe, but you're hearing chords that have fuller voicing to them. There's ninths and thirteens, Then mm-hmm. sometimes there's bigger, fatter chords in the piano, and the guitar might not be just strumming like you're hearing it in folk music, but it might be using more comping patterns, But <laughs> playing these kind of different patterns. Yeah. So sometimes people will miss the um the complexity of what's going on back in the background and that is dis- that can be distracting to mm-hmm. a to someone who doesn't like jazz music. They're going, "Hey man, just give me what's the expression, three chords and a
0: Oh, I don't
1: know. <laughs> Three chords and a chorus or something like that. That's
0: all you uh, there's, need. There's really. an
1: expression for rock and roll that Huey Lewis in the news used. Mm-hmm. Three chords. And uh, that's cool. Um, there's room in the world for many different uh, styles of music. Mm-hmm. Of and of course, the uh, I think sometimes when you realize that jazz was a blending of cultures in New Orleans... Mm-hmm. and that there was actually an openness in New Orleans to the development of black music because it was a Catholic culture and it was not puritanical like the Northeast. Mm-hmm. So people there gave greater sort of latitude for black musicians to develop their craft. Wow, It's really amazing that that's where jazz started in New Orleans, Louisiana. Wow, But if you go to New Orleans you'll see jazz bands in parades going up the street.
0: That's what I've heard, that sounds that's, that's really awesome. <laughs>
1: we visited there, my wife and I and a couple of musicians from our church, we went down there and we saw three street parades in one weekend, <laughs> Oof. one was a wedding, one was a funeral and I don't remember what the third one was. Mm-hmm. But um, when you see these horns and drums, you see it in, a, in, a, in the flesh like that, walking up the street, and people are dancing and having fun. Gosh. It really is a much more accessible kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. And it's jazz. It's plain old jazz. If you listen to Wynton Marsalis talk or you listen to him play the trumpet, he has a lot of New Orleans in his playing. That's right, yeah. It's the sound that you hear in Louis Armstrong and other great uh, New Orleans players. So there are things that people can miss. Um, I think, too, that there's some great songs that we know in the American Songbook. (laughs) summertime and the living is easy. So that's a very simple tune. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a blues tune, but it's not really a blues. Yeah. George Gershwin wrote that He wrote it for Porgy and Bess And it was written um, To be a part of a, a of An a opera that was based In style of jazz Ooh, Nice. And then if you're listening to Billie Holiday But God Bless the child It's got his own mm-hmm. You're hearing This tune that Billie Holiday wrote And she sang a lot of music But that was one she actually wrote Wow. and there's music like that that's in the in our ears because we live in america mm-hmm. and we hear music and sometimes people miss the connection between that and the classic history that we know as jazz wow yeah i
0: would agree with that that's uh a... and there there have been so many covers of a uh, of summertime that i know of even uh you know random bands like uh sublime they did a cover of uh Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'd call it necessarily that cover, but they, they definitely were inspired by that. Took the sound and uh, and then they just you know put their own lyrics over it. (laughs) But
1: um, yeah, yeah. But um, that's kind of like that Van Morrison tune, uh, Moon. What is it? Moon. Moon dance. Mm -hmm. For a moon dance. Oh yes, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Van Morrison was a rock artist. And a lot of the boomers my age, they know him as one of those guys up there with Dylan and all that. Mm-hmm. But Van Morrison wrote this one tune that had this strong swing feel, and many jazz artists have covered it to the point that it's in the real book as a standard. Yeah. Wow. That's like Stevie Wonder's music. Stevie Wonder's music is also, a mm-hmm. lot of it is considered standard. You are the sunshine of my life. Um, that music was written in the 70s for the pop radio market. Mm-hmm. But now it's considered jazz standards because jazz players like to play it. It's got good changes and, yeah. and, and it's a good vehicle for improvisation. So sometimes people miss the fact that a lot of the pop music that we enjoy and have come up th- through is used by jazz musicians.
0: Yeah, that's true. And uh, I'm thinking of another example of that. Um, I think it was moon dance too, where someone took the melody and I'm, um... I, I can't remember. I can hear it in my head though. It's a it's a popular uh, female artist like Ariana Grande or something. They they took oh, the movie really? for Moon Dance and they put it in, in a in a pop song. And uh, I wish I had written it down so I could uh, so I could give the example. But um, it's still yeah. happening with our music right now. And um, yeah, it's uh, so interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on again. Uh, so why do you think that jazz early, I guess earlier jazz has been controversial? as a genre or has it been controversial? What do you, what do you think?
1: Well, initially, historically there was controversy and coming up in the church like I have, Mm -hmm. um, I remember when uh, rock music and the Beatles and all uh, first came into the United States in 1964. Mm -hmm. And many, many fundamentalist preachers uh, represented that music as inherently evil yep. <laughs> and um, everything you know in, in in a biblical worldview, if you're talking about the Bible now and not talking about religion or certain denominations, but if you're talking about a biblical worldview, sure. everything is tainted by the by the fall of Adam and Eve. Yeah. everything that we experience has that mark on it. And it has to be redeemed by the power of God. So if you look at an idiom and say this is inherently evil, you're saying that it's of the devil and it cannot be redeemed. Mm. Then that's a pretty harsh uh, verdict yeah. <laughs> to an entire group of people, particularly people who came from Africa. And to say that African music is of the devil is what was being said. When I was a when I was a kid coming up they wow. were saying that the reason that rock music was evil was because the beat was syncopated and it made your heart go the wrong way because it was on the off beats. Hmm. There are books written about this. I believe wow. me. Believe me. There's people who believe that. Wow. That's one whole controversy and even before I was around the puritanical people in America felt that this music was had, that it brought lust and evil things out of you. So mm-hmm. there was a certain controversy about it then. But um, there's something else you might not have been referring to when you were talking about controversy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, when when swing came in, uh, New Orleans music was kind of a hot style, and it was kind of a two. Uh, a two beat style. And when swing came in, the beat changed more into a four, four, and it developed a different emphasis. The drummer and the bass player had a different sound. And it's not so much controversy as it is kind of a, an abandoning of one set of priorities and embracing another set of priorities. (laughs) And swing was controversial among the hot jazz musicians because it was considered to be, a sellout. <laughs> it was commercial. Swing bands were traveling around, making a lot of money and very popular because they were playing to the crowd. They were playing to the audience. Right. And so some t- some of controversy of swing was that it was commercializing jazz, wow. the purity of jazz. Wow. And you know, during my lifetime, the same thing happened when disco came in, in the 70s. All right. <laughs> disco became a dance style mm-hmm. and a lot of R&B music was, had this sort of disco flavor to it. And many, many jazz musicians got gigs playing in these disco bands because they, they were horn bands yeah. and they had hip like jazz chords in them, but it was with a rock beat. And mm. so many back in the seventies, when I was playing in clubs, if we had a disco tune come along, the, the jazz musicians would go, oh man, that stuff is crap, man. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And so there was a similar kind of pushback when disco came in um, during, the, uh, during the 70s. Because in the 60s, you know, the rock music was all about protest and, and um, peace and love and Woodstock. Right. Yeah. And when the 70s came in, Rock music became party, you know. It was just get drunk and mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so disc, disco music was primarily a dance dance idiom, and uh, not for so not for listening. So mm-hmm. controversies come up sometimes in music for different reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Is that I what
1: like... you meant? Is that what you yeah. meant by controversy?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great. Um, I kind of feel like. Some of that same kind of controversy still happens today. Do you, can you think of any examples of um, maybe how, how people think uh, certain musicians or certain styles of uh, music are, are selling out today,
1: maybe?: I think um, I think among the musical community, uh, the, the, the introduction of artificial tracks. Um, Rhythmic loops
0: oh, and like, sampling. Uh, like drum pads and... Um, yeah. The, yeah.
1: And you can buy, and I have, mm-hmm. software for my uh, my computer where you can literally just put in the chords or you, you can grab a, a sample from another tune and put it in there and put a drum beat underneath it and never play a note. <laughs> so some musicians uh, despise this type of music making because mm-hmm. it's not really... People aren't actually playing; they're just putting together elements that right. have already been played in recordings. All oh, right. I don't uh, know if that's—I don't know if that would be considered a controversy, but I know that musicians are yeah. put out of work by that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, definitely. And um, I've heard that, you know, from from some of my some of my friends. They've uh, they said um, they don't like. Uh, I guess I don't know what, what kind of specific genre like specifically uses drum pads and stuff, but music where people press like a button and then the music starts playing and then they can press another button and then something else starts playing and they, they think that's selling out. And I think, um, I don't think that's necessarily selling out or, or I don't think, I don't think it's wrong or anything. Um, I like to think of, a I guess a quote from a, a rush, a rush song, um, spirit of the radio. Um, all this machinery making modern music can still be open hearted. I firmly believe that. And I think you can, um, I think you can still, um, you can still make a lot of music. Um, I guess, uh, I guess I just don't know how to put it, but you can, you can use a drum pad and I think you can still make great music. And I can, I still think that that music is still worthy. Um,
1: you could could take the, uh, you could take, make the metaphor, the analogy to the visual arts Mm -hmm. And you could say, well, there are many different ways to create a work of art. Mm -hmm. And some artists do it through sculpture, and some do it through creating uh, collages on the wall of previously Mm -hmm. existent pictures or colors. Mm -hmm. And uh, some artists just flat paint it. Right onto the canvas.
0: And I've seen I've seen videos of some artists literally um, tying a rope to a paint can from the ceiling and then just throwing it down, and then that's the art is <laughs> whatever splatters on the wall. <laughs> and um,
1: well, in the, in terms of the musical elements, it is still a craft. Definitely, It's definitely a craft to put these elements together. For a rapper, for example, to have beats underneath and to have a particular, some of them I think. Contrive the um, the bass sound of their music to sound good in cars, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and really be really shake the whole car whenever that bass yep.
0: frequency yep.
1: is hit. So there is a whole craft that goes into rap, mm. and of course the other issue with rap is that it's a it's the voice of a marginalized group in our society. Yep. It's the voice of of the urban poet, you might say. So you, you really can't take a whole idiom and go, that's not really music or that's not really. That's not um, fair. And great musicians like let's say Quincy Jones. Yeah. Quincy Jones can do it all. He, he, he directed the orchestra when Miles Davis performed live at Newport and did his sketches of Spain live after it had been recorded. Quincy <laughs> yeah. Jones was the conductor. Quincy Jones arranged Michael Jackson's album off the wall that became (laughs) such an an important change for Michael Jackson's music and move him out of the Jackson five and into his own personality. And I cut my eye teeth on off the wall. I listened to that whole album and I learned every song. Yeah. So Quincy Jones is not a guy who, and he's still living. He's not a guy who says, ah, that hip hop ain't really music. I mean he does have his opinions all, all right. Sure. But um uh, I think that true artists and craftsmen try to make make room for uh new developments in the in an in an art form. Yeah. I think that's great. All
0: right. Well um I think that wraps up our uh, first little section here talking about just jazz in general. Let's move on to uh, Mary Lou Williams. Uh oh yeah our, our focus artist for the for this piece. Um yeah, first of all, who is she? Who is Mary Lou Williams?
1: <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's someone that would you wouldn't necessarily consider to be uh, the most the most well known uh, mm-hmm. jazz artist, but uh, she was born in Atlanta in 1910, and she died in Durham, North Carolina, while she was teaching at Duke University wow. uh, in 1981. So she died during my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, And, um, Mary Lou was a pianist and arranger and a composer. And, um, she grew up in Pittsburgh. We, I guess you have some biographical highlights later in the interview, but she did a lot of arranging for uh, swing bands, including Tommy Dorsey. Uh, Andy Kirk band was the one she worked with the most, but she arranged for Benny Goodman or Duke Ellington. She did one tune for him and, um, she had her own small ensembles too, but Mary Lou Williams was a pianist and arranger, and a composer. Wow.
0: Great. No, that wraps up pretty, pretty well. Um, so does she have any uh, albums that she came out with?
1: If you go to Spotify, uh, <laughs> there are just, there are so many recordings now that you can get of Mary Lou Williams. And also, just as a sidebar, my music history book said, and this is a this woman is so amazing, and there's no one who's done a biography of her. Well, if you go online, you'll see that there are now two biographies of Good. Mary Lou Williams.
0: I guess someone read uh, read your textbook and said, well, we got to fix this.
1: <laughs> well, I think at least one of them was written by a woman, and Good. that of course, awesome. is, and that of course is one of the things that Mary Lou Williams. Uh, that's one of the things that makes her distinct is that she was a female musician in a man's world back in yep. the swing era. Women were not playing in the band so much mm-hmm. before her Louis Armstrong's wife, Lil Hardin, was a pianist in his band. Yep. So if you see pictures of Louis Armstrong's band, you'll see a woman playing the piano there too. But so if we go back to her albums, I'd say if you wanted to listen to examples of her music, there's one record called Mary Lou Williams' Collection, 1927 to 1959. Ooh. And it's just like it sounds. It's it's a compilation of her swing arrangements with the Andy Kirk Orchestra, which was called The Twelve Clouds of Joy. Oh. So that record, if you pick up that record, you're going to be hearing big band music, swing mm-hmm. music. But then if you want to listen to Mary Lou Wils- Williams as a composer, and as a pianist, more. Mm-hmm. She had one work that she did. It was called the Zodiac Suite. And that is now an album you can get or listen to on Spotify.
0: I'm going to write that down. That was really interesting the Zodiac Suite.
1: The Zodiac Suite goes around all the signs of the Zodiac. And cool. she has little, sort of little music, piano pieces or piano trio drums and bass pieces that she uses to colorful represent each of the signs of the Zodiac.
0: Oh, that's really interesting.
1: Oh. So that's one that you could hear, I think, her uh, compositional technique. But another one that would be some of her later compositional style would be one called zoning, Z-O-N-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. And it would have her, again, just playing piano with a rhythm section and playing music that is more... Bop and post bop. Okay, her Zodiac Suite is is kind of like the sound of a pianist in the swing era that's playing jazz. A lot of swing piano had stride, which is kind of like boom jink, boom jink, hmm. bottom and the top going back and forth. Yeah. So there's there's a couple different records that you could listen to for that. And then the third category of her albums would be her religious music. Oh, okay. As a religious jazz composer and a performer, you got to listen to Black Christ of the Andes. Oh, gosh, yeah. I, it's I gotta called Black Christ thing. of the Andes. And basically, after Mary Lou Williams became a Roman Catholic, she began to really get into Catholic theology. And there came up a saint that was canonized by the Catholic Church. And he was, he was from South America and he was black. And so she took this guy, I think his name is St. Martin. And on that recording, Black Christ of the Andes, she took the Ray Charles Singers, which was a jazz choir at, of, of that time, mm-hmm. and did some amazing jazz choral music with a religious subject matter. Wow. It's unique. It's now Ellington did that too. Duke Ellington did Mm -hmm. three different sacred concerts at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Dave Brubeck was a Catholic and he also wrote religious music in a jazz genre, but this stuff is better. (laughs) (laughs) Black Christ of the Andes is way better. Ah. In my opinion of what Ellington did. Mm -hmm. I just, I just love what she did on that record. And of course there's one, Um, album that is simply called Mary Lou's Mass. Mm -hmm. And if you're familiar with Catholic theology and with Christian liturgy, the Mass is a music form. Mm -hmm. It came out of the church, but then it became a music form that many different composers created masses all the way from Bach, all the way down to Pendresky in the 20th century created masses it had a credo, and it had a sanctus, and it had a kyrie, yep. and all these elements were in it. And Mary Lou's Mass is just that. Wow! It's and, it's, and it's still in a jazz setting, too. Yeah, it's jazz mass. It's a jazz mass. That is so interesting. <laughs> so when you asked about the albums, I just I listened to a lot of her music in preparation for our talk today, mm. and those I think would be fairly representative.
0: Great, yeah, that's a. I think that's a great list uh, to uh, give our viewers to listen to. I mm-hmm. I just put on the Spotify and I just let it go, <laughs> and yeah. uh, didn't pay too much attention to the uh, the names of songs and stuff. But I'm, um, I've been listening. Well, that to Spotify list,
1: the Spotify list where it says Mary Lou Williams and then it gives a sampling of all of her music, mm-hmm. that's good too. That's a good way to get started. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, does she have any other achievements that she's uh, that she's done?
1: Well, we already mentioned Lil Hardin was a a female pianist in the uh, New Orleans era, Mm -hmm. and there may be others, but if you ever have the chance to look at um, a famous photograph that was taken in New York in 1958 of a bunch of jazz musicians posing at a brownstone, you can look this up. If you want to Google it, you can look it up under the name Great Day in Harlem. Great Day in Harlem? Um, And it is a photograph of jazz musicians that were living in New York in 1958. And Mary Lou Williams is in this picture down front talking with another female pianist, (laughs) Marian McPartland. They're standing side by side talking together in this photograph. (laughs) So Marian McPartland lived up until just a few years ago and she had a a radio show on NPR called Marian McPartland's Piano Jazz. How have I missed that? I love NPR. <laughs> if you go on to Spotify, you'll find a, a record of Marian McPartland's interview with Mary Lou Williams. Oh wow! Two women pianists talking about their careers in jazz.
0: That has got to be a
1: very and playing together. Yeah, Mary Lou. Mary Lou. I'm sorry, uh, Marian McPartland her piano jazz was a riveting program. She had many pianists come on. She'd ask them about their style and then they would play together and they'd improvise together. Wow. And Mary McPartland's husband, Jimmy McPartland was a, a swing musician. So um, she was the, f- but Mary, Mary Lou Williams was the first female pianist in the swing era. Wow. And that's one an kind of her, of her one of the main achievements to, to do that type of work in a man's world. Yeah. She was also an arranger, as we said, and her arrangements were widely sought after. And then not only that, but she was a band leader. And if you've ever been in a band, you know that it's a lot of work to keep a band going, to get the gigs, to plan the music, to um, even to uh, plan the sets so that the crowd Mm -hmm. is interested and and you keep people going. Another couple things she did. After she converted to Roman Catholicism in the late 50s, she launched a foundation called the Bel Canto Foundation Mm. for for addicted musicians, musicians who were struggling with drug addiction. Wow. Is that amazing? That is amazing. (laughs) Now you know, it's a matter of record that many, many great jazz musicians were addicted to drugs. Bill Evans, Coltrane, Miles, Charlie Parker and booze too. So I don't know whether she was, her foundation was for alcohol addicted musicians too, but she mm-hmm. did that. And that has to be a labor of love right there. Yes. Definitely. And to me, that is a great achievement for a musician to have the humility to set up a foundation to help musicians get out of their addictions.
0: It is quite amazing.
1: And then, of course, we already said that she created jazz liturgical works, and I think that is an achievement. Um, there are other jazz recordings of religious music, and being a, a Christian musician myself, I've collected a lot of them. Um, one of my favorite jazz recordings features a swing singer named Dorothy Collins, mm-hmm. and the jazz album is it's called Jazz Hymns.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Dorothy Collins was also a vocalist with big band music back in the 30, 40s. Yeah. And uh, that's another example of jazz-oriented uh, worship music. But Marian, Mary Lou Williams uh, created jazz liturgical works, and I think that was a great achievement.
0: It is, definitely. That's a, a whole another genre of music I I haven't delved into yet. <laughs> I, I do need to. Uh. Let's move on here. Do you have any um, favorite experiences with her music specifically? Wow. <laughs> well, any, memorable, any memorable memories of uh, of uh, playing her music or anything, or just hearing her music?
1: Well, I knew her by reputation when I was studying jazz uh, in the 90s, and I went back to school and got a graduate degree, and I was studying a lot of the history of jazz. And, of course, I was very interested in the pianists of jazz. But, you know... It was your interview today, Joseph, (laughs) that made me really, really listen closely to her music. Great. And I have to go back and say that my favorite experience of these last several days was hearing the Black Christ of the Andes. Now, here in Zoom, I can set it up so that you can hear a track from Spotify where you are sure because Yeah. zoom has a feature where i can set it up but i don't think we have time to
0: <clears throat> yeah we're getting close to an hour here
1: i have to do it before i enter the zoom suite i have to set it up so that you can hear my uh, tracks and when i was teaching in covenant i'd be doing that for my students so they could hear the music on the other end so listen to the black christ and i think you'll understand mm-hmm. why it would make a big impression on me um Definitely. Now, Mary Lou's uh, piano playing changed. She started as a swing musician, but by the time you hear her playing on "Zoning," you're hearing you're hearing McCoy Tyner. You're hearing a late contemporary jazz pianist. And one one um, historian that I read said that she probably influenced McCoy Tyner by the way she played. Wow, but she did come before him. Mm-hmm. She was around before him, yeah. and you're hearing in her piano playing, you're hearing chordal harmonies, chordal Q U A R T A L harmonies based on fourths, just like McCoy plays, and that that sound on zoning, it's um, I, I would be ama- It would be amazing. I've never read anything about McCoy listening to Mary Lou, but I do know that she spent time with Monk and Bud Powell in New York. And they, of course, were seminal beboppers, mm-hmm. and so she was influenced by the bebop pianists, and that's something I admire about Mary Lou: is that she obviously learned a lot from other people. Seems so, yeah. She she wasn't uh, proud, she's too proud to learn. <laughs>
0: that's good. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, quartal harmonies.
1: <laughs> um, quartal, yes, yeah. based on fourths, not thirds. So, would that be like? Uh, I can't think of it. there we go oh,
0: yes fourths wow. okay I hear it now, yeah, that's interesting. usually, the chords that we hear are based on thirds, which is a little bit smaller of uh, notes are a little closer together, so they don't sound quite as open it's a it's a quite quite a different sound, that's what she was oh, uh, that's what she I love hearing. that sound, yeah
1: i love that sound and fourths are very common in soul music too Mm -hmm. um if you ever listen to um we mentioned cb wonder if you listen to Smokey robinson a lot of the soul musicians from the 70s and 80s you hear a lot in their music you hear a lot of fourths and what they call sus chords Mm -hmm. and um that's something that Sometimes in pop music, it's very accessible. We don't realize what we're hearing. Yeah. But um, that that was part of her style toward the end of her uh, career.
0: That's really neat. Well, um, I was going to ask what's your favorite album, but I, can I guess, is it Black Christ of the Andes? Is that be well, your
1: favorite Mary Lou album? There again, I, I, did, I did break it down into three different categories because that represents one part of her music. Christ would be my favorite of her vocal, faith-based, and she has others. Mm-hmm. She has other uh, vocal albums, faith-based albums, but I like the song "Ode to Saint Cecile" if you want to listen to a piano trio tune, okay. that would be just her playing piano and it would have more of that McCoy sound, "Ode to Saint Cecile. But if you want to listen to her swing arranging, I like the song "Walking' and Swingin" that she did with the Andy Kirk band okay. And then, apparently, she gets a ranger credit for the famous, very famous tune, Moten Swing. (laughs) M-O-T-E-N. Benny Moten was the conductor of the band that Count Basie joined Wow. (laughs) in Kansas City. Count Mm -hmm. Basie joined Benny Moten's band. And when Mr. Moten died, Count Basie took his band, moved to Chicago, and it became the Count Basie Orchestra.
0: Oh, wow. I wasn't expecting that.
1: <laughs> so I was looking, today I was looking over and trying to decide which of her swing tunes I wanted to say were my favorites. Mm-hmm. And there in the list from that album, Mary Lou Williams' collection, it said Moten Swing was an example of her arranging. Wow. Well, there's a very famous section in that song where it goes, da 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 All the horns are all playing this riff, Mm -hmm. and it's used as an example of Kansas City jazz because it's riff. It's got this riff in it in the at the last chorus. (laughs) And the Moten swing is a huge. I mean, when I heard that on Mary Lee Williams' music, I said, "Whoa!" (laughs) If she arranged that, that that puts her in the line with Count Basie, one of the great swing band directors of all time yeah and um so i recommend the and swing if if i need to probably dig a little deeper and see if she actually did the arrangement on that yeah
0: um
1: but i know she did it on walking and swinging and that one i like too it's a it's more the sound of swing band music
0: yeah wow well let's uh i guess let's to our, our last question here um What impact has she had on the larger cultural stage, would you say?
1: Well, Joseph, I like this question because I'm a musician that has made my living in music all my life. That's the dream. And I was in the position that you are right now. I went into music and didn't do anything else and never looked back. (laughs) Yeah. I... I immediately started recording, performing, traveling, playing, playing in clubs, Mm -hmm. playing in churches, playing in conventions. And it's been my career for my entire life. And I relate to Mary Lou Williams' impact because I see how my life has impacted the culture around me. And I relate to her impact in similar ways because she's not the most famous jazz musician. Mm -hmm. She was there. She was there when important things were going down. Most definitely. And, And so her foundation for musicians and sharing her resources that made a cultural impression for that time, particularly in her role in the band in Kansas city. And then later when she moved to New York and arranged, um, for Duke Ellington. She actually played with Duke Ellington and the Washingtonians. That was his first band, the Mm -hmm. Washingtonians. So she was in there and had a big impact on some of the most formative years of jazz. Mm -hmm. And then of course, she shared her resources as a faith expression. And I think that it's gutsy for a secular musician to say, I don't care what you think, I believe in God, I believe in in a life of faith, and I'm going to put that into my music, and I'm yeah. going to put it on recordings, and it's going to be a part of what I do that's important. And of course, Ellington also said the same thing. He said that his sacred concerts were the most important thing he did in his entire career. Wow. <laughs> and of course, we wouldn't all agree with that, because if you listen to his sacred concerts, and you listen to... It ain't worth a thing if it ain't got that swing and you listen to Take the A-Train and listen to some of Mood Indigo and some of Ellington's songs, you gotta go, oh, no, no, those songs were much greater. But her impact was to, I think, create that, open to open that door for musicians to express their faith. Now, of course, it goes without saying that her women's role in a heavily male-dominated profession, this was in the 30s and 40s now, this was not... After the feminism, yeah, <laughs> this was in a time when she probably had to fight the guys off. She was very beautiful, and they were probably bothering her all the time. Yeah. And night after night, these swing bands would play, and um, oftentimes the other musicians, the male musicians, would be would get drunk. Um, if you read the stories of the early swing bands, a lot of those musicians were addicted. And so yeah. I can imagine that it was very hard for her to maintain.
0: It sounds like a like a, a sketchy situation, you know, very, to be like, very
1: yeah an oppressive yeah. environment. It would definitely yeah. be. You talk about Me Too movement. She mm-hmm. really have to struggle. And yet she was able to produce music and not just survive, but to produce music. Yeah. And then I think her impact at Duke probably as an educator toward the end of her life. She was there as artist in residence. And it was during that time that she played in the Jimmy Carter White House. Um, She was a performer in 1978 uh, when Jimmy Carter was president. And um, so I think fulfilling her service as an educator was a, was a logical place for her to end her life as a musician in the Academy, because she was obviously a teacher all throughout her life. Yeah. Wow.
0: That's a lot there. And, um, Definitely, it's it 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 just the fact that she was successful as a woman in this time. That I mean, that itself says a lot, right there, because that probably was very very hard to uh, just to uh, just to be a woman, you know, doing uh, doing everything that she did. So. Now,
1: of course, she was African American, and it was hard for all African Americans, and that's a whole another layer on
0: top of that, too. <laughs>
1: right they, the uh, the the Jim Crow era was a very brutal era for african-american musicians Mm -hmm. and um you can you can read about it uh what some of the black musicians did in order to avoid it some moved to europe and mary lou did go to europe for a couple of years and it was there that she became a catholic when she came back she left music for about 10 years she quit playing wow i didn't know that I don't know if it was 10 years. She she abruptly retired in 1954. Okay, it was only three years. She retired from music and converted to Catholicism and started the foundation in 54. And then it was in 1957 that she played Newport Jazz Festival. Wow. So it was there were three years there where she just kind of put her instrument down. Mm-hmm. And who knows? It might have been burnout. She might have just got totally fed up with all the manipulation and... No, that would be understandable. <laughs> you know, Sonny Rollins did that too. He it was a period of time when he withdrew from playing the saxophone in public. Yeah. So anyway, amazing woman,
0: <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Definitely very very amazing. Well, um, I think that's going to wrap it up for our our first uh, installment of the art of jazz. Um, so thank you very much, uh, James. Uh, we appreciate talking to you and. Um, yeah, that was Mary Lou Williams. It's it's so uh, interesting to learn all this stuff about her. A lot of things I didn't know, and um, great conversation. So thank you, thank you so much for that. Thank
1: you, Joseph. Anytime.
0: All right, well we're gonna of here. Have a great day. We'll see you.
1: Okay.